0: Oh he was definitely a doctor. There is no question of that. I mean we know where he went to medical school, we know when he graduated, you know, we know he's registered in the you know different um, medical directories in Britain, you know between this year and that year there are people who were who were treated by him. He was definitely a doctor. There's no question about that. That's not to say that he doesn't embellish some of the stories about his medical career. So he writes in great detail about his time at medical school and there is a you know there are some pretty tall tales in there including one which really stuck out to us which is a story he tells about breaking into the morgue of the hospital as a as a medical student in the middle of the night and tampering with evidence um on a corpse on a corpse's neck
1: wow <laughs> That's so- that is wild.
0: Um the story is that his friend is performing a tracheotomy on a young woman and he screws up the tracheotomy cuz he's never done one before and she dies. Basically he puts the trach he does the tracheotomy in the wrong tube in the neck. So he does it instead of doing it in the windpipe, he does it in the in the gullet. Um and the
1: esophagus for Mary. In her.
0: the esophagus, yeah. And uh there's going to be a medical investigation so fader breaks into the morgue and he basically makes a hole in the windpipe so that when the medical board investigates they don't see that his friend put the hole in the wrong tube um so he cuts a hole in the neck and then he sneaks back out of the um out of the morgue and uh and that's that and his friend is acquitted that's the story he tells
1: what strikes me is not only the direct comparison of the neck issue, but the fact that he seems to be someone who made a lot of people grateful for something that he had done on their behalf. So a lot of people were, the phrase you used, Tristan, was were in his debt and likely to be called on to repay the favour at some point. Is that fair?
0: Uh, I mean, he definitely tells a lot of stories where he is... Um, the hero and is, is helping some people out of a tight spot, for sure. That's a recurring theme.
1: There's so much there about surgeons... And there is this general perception, unfair or otherwise, that surgeons and particularly male surgeons, because they have to be so dispassionate about operating on a human body, they remove themselves from natural empathy almost entirely in order to do their job. And it is a job that attracts a certain flavor of narcissist. But did you think about that in relation to Father? The fact that he strikes me as someone who can suspend his empathy for other people if he ever felt it. And he does have some characteristics of narcissism.
0: I guess the counterpoint to that is that would a narcissist be so loving and thoughtful towards his children, which he clearly was? You know, the letters that he writes to his children are all about how much he wants to see them, how much he wants to help them, and his involvement in their lives is incredibly deep and committed. He knows every single detail of their lives because he cares. Um, and I struggle to square that with his other tendencies, which I do agree are seem pretty narcissistic.
1: He was clearly a man who loved telling a story about himself and two others. And that makes me question what he says in the bulletins. It, it just sounds too too good sometimes. It just sounds too sentimental. And it makes me question what Bindle told you too, because is this just a family that likes to tell stories about itself, that wants to protect the family unit and maintain this communal identity and a belief about who they are? I know that's a huge question. <laughs> and I have to say, all of the dances come out so well in Ghost Story. I think they seem utterly delightful, but I still want to ask that question about the story the family tells itself about itself.
2: Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the intelligence cell, which now has two analysts within it, which is so exciting for me because, yes, I'm a geek, and I want everybody to hear this incredible interview with my very special guest who, well, you explain, Sam, who you are and your background and credentials.
3: Laura, my goodness, I can't believe we're here and in my most favourite place in intelligence cell. Thank you so much for the invite coming on. We have known each other a very, very, very long time. Um, and I'm sure we'll we'll cover that in some detail a bit later on. But I am a, a fellow crime analyst. I worked in Surrey and Sussex Police for, I think it was almost almost 19 years. I got very close to the 20 years. Wow. Um, I know, long, it's such a long time, isn't it? As an it's analyst. a long time. I, and had really an a, an amazing career. And what a privilege, what a privilege to work on some of the jobs that I did work on. Um, but I spent almost 20 years as a crime analyst and intelligence manager in policing and UK law enforcement in Surrey and Sussex um, at the very beginning of my career. I always say I was lucky. I say I was lucky to get this particular break. And everyone always says to me, you, ma- you made your own luck. And it's a very long story as to how I ended up on this one week course, which was a FBI run course. So I was a, still a student at University in Cardiff studying psychology but ended up on um, an FBI course run by the late, great Bob Resler and Roy Hazelwood from the FBI, um, who I know that you also kn- knew well. And I did. Worked two brilliant with. men. Yes. Two two brilliant men. I, I always like to refer to them as uh, the the sort of granddaddies of offender profiling and, you know, behavioural analysis. And that, for me, was an absolutely incredible experience. So I was very fortunate to get on that course. I was the only civilian member of that course and I basically begged the very kind professor who had got the FBI into Dundee University to do this week-long policing course. I begged him if I could go on it, and he was very kind and, and let me do that and from there I ended up meeting a couple of people that were setting up a new unit that was called the National Crime Faculty. So that has gone on to be, you know, in several guises um, and is now eventually the the NCA.
2: So many different name changes. So but yes, many. National Crime I Faculty, can't. National Crime and Operations Faculty, NPIA, oh. National Policing Improvement Agency. I mean, I'm putting oh, these yes. out of my head. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? goodness.
3: Yeah, I've lost track. I've lost track. There's, there were so many. There were so many guises. I was very fortunate and I was in at the very beginning I went in as an administrative system because um, I kept begging them for a job. So the people that I met up in Dundee, I kept, um, I basically became the bane of their life and was on the phone all the time going, got a job, got a job, got a job. You were tenacious. Um, (laughs) I was tenacious. Tenacious. Other people might say differently, but um, that led to me. And I, I got an administrative role there, but I was very, very fortunate because that particular unit ran the serious and serious crime course. So I had the absolute privilege of sitting in lectures and sitting and watching presentations as they were delivered to police officers that were coming in to learn about linking serious and serious crime. You know, and I got to watch all the, you know, the, the Fred and Rose West and uh, the Black Inquiry and oh, it's so many others as well, where I, I, you know, I watched these lectures being given and watched how the crimes unfolded and how things were linked together and also, we worked with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to set up SCAS, so the Serious Crime Analysis Section, and to
2: to get I remember um, SCAS well. You remember Being SCAS, the satellite and Vi- section, and setting that up at New Scotland Yard,
3: which which will all play into how we kind of ended up meeting each other, won't it? Which we will get, get onto much later. But you know, setting up the bi class system and really learning there about how to what went into linking crimes. And then I was on a very short comment. I was there for about nine months um, and it was a, a fixed term contract. And oh, my goodness, I was heartbroken when I had to leave. Absolutely heartbroken. But I went and I left and I got a temping job somewhere and then went and applied to become an analyst in Sussex. And I became the false um, intelligence analyst, the only analyst in the false intelligence bureau at the time. To work in Sussex. And from there, I basically built my career up and became a senior analyst and then became the intelligence manager. And I really ended up specialising in major crime, serious and organised crime, for really the, be- the best part of 15 years. And I was the um, national lead on the Homicide Working Group for about four years for analysis. So that's going to um, a national group of police officers, each of who have got a portfolio um, in relation to major crime. And, you know, talking to them about analysis and looking to find ways that we can improve it. And part of that was to do an annual, I'd, I'd want to say a training course, but actually it was more a peer sharing of information. So best practice where we once a year all got together and shared best practice of big cases that people worked on and we did that for almost 10 years, I think I did nine years and then I ended up leaving in uh, the very brilliant team that I left did, did the 10th year but I got invited back as a guest which was really lovely. So I've had a privilege of working on some major inquiries, I worked on the um, Amanda Dowler inquiry which eventually saw the conviction of Levi Belfield at court and also the uh, merger of the Arthill family in the French Alps, which was uh, another really big, really big, really big media inquiry for me. But amongst the others that we've revisited, really and what you know, ev- every job was a privilege. Every job and bringing every offender to justice was a, a privilege, and it's so important to do as victims. And I, I'm still hugely passionate about crime analysis and bringing on the next generation of crime analysts and. Making sure they, you know, they know the things to look for and to always be curious, like you say. So yeah, it's just um, it's been a great career, and what a privilege to be able to talk to you and share that with you today.
2: Yes, well, you've done some fantastic work, Sam. Thank you. You really have, and we've known each other for many years. And one of the things I will say is that often analysts, the work that we do is in the background, i.e. in the shadows, and we're not front and centre in the media. That's the role of the senior investigating officer or whoever they decide to put in to be the point for media. And therefore, a lot of our work is never really talked about or shown. And we all accept that in terms of we're there to do a job, right? We're there to ask questions, and to be curious, and to, I mean, when I was trained at New Scotland Yard, it was the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, the how, particularly in stranger crime, to get to the whom, Yeah. right? But often you are in the shadows, which means that you're overlooked in terms of, let's talk about the true crime space now. You know, when it comes to true crime and documentaries and so on, it's actually very rare to have an analyst-centred, and that's a lot of the work that I've been doing with crime analysts to show that actually the work that we do is so detailed, so nuanced, we don't just arrive at these conclusions without having done all the steps before, all the analytical work prior. I mean, crime analysts is part of that step change, making sure you know that people know, well, we've had the CSIs, we've had the detectors, we've had the profilers, but actually what hasn't really been talked about are the crime analysts, so you and the me who do, and, and many others all across the world who do such incredible work, but are often the unsung and overlooked heroes and sheroes. So I really want to position the yous and all of those that do this incredible amount of work but rarely get the thank you or the pat on the back. And that's why I was so excited to actually watch Griselda, which is a Netflix show which positioned June Hawkins, who was the intelligence analyst, who really, it was her work... Her intelligence-led an evidence-based approach which led to the taking down of Griselda Blanco. It was what she did, and she was the one who was tenacious, who kept saying, we need to think in terms of how she would behave and react. We need to find her strongholds. We need to understand the people that work for her. She was thinking much more in an intelligence-led perspective. She was looking at crime scenes, thinking, well, hang on, if he, if he shot the person and he was lent over the car he had his hand potentially on the roof of the car whilst he was leaning there. So there might be a partial print or a full print there. And she's writing up these memos, memo after memo, and all the detectives are just ignoring her. They're ridiculing her. They're basically just using her as sort of the office jokes person and not paying any attention to what she said until they get a major break in the case due to something that that she said. And she works with a detective who really does get what she's about. And I just loved seeing that, that she, because she's a real person, by the way, this did happen. Yeah, yeah, no,
0: And it's the first time
2: I've seen it in a scripted show. You know, I'm not talking about criminal minds, Garcia, who sat there tapping away and breaking into all these databases. I'm talking about the actual work that we do with looking very closely in the micro details of things, right? And when we first started out, we had very much – I mean, I, I'll speak for myself, but I was treated in the same way. And Jackie Morton, who we both know when we talked about Dr. Naomi dancy and Ghost Story, she alluded to that. So when you started at New Scotland Yard, you had a very tough gig, Laura, because – People weren't about analysis. You were the new breed coming in, saying things that are quite different. And that's not always easy at the start. And I know that you have positioned, you know, and you've been certainly very well respected throughout your career, but in the early days, it wasn't so easy, right? It was a challenge to have your voice heard. (laughs) (laughs) There are many stories we could tell. If I had a
3: pound,
2: (laughs) how many stories?
3: (laughs) If I had a pound for every time... A police officer, and I'm just going to call it out now. A police officer said to me, do you want to go and get your box of crowns so you can draw a chart? Oh, my goodness, I'd, I'd be rich. And that, and it's so interesting what you say, because part of that battle of being heard was the fact that you weren't a police officer. Yeah, you know, I've never been a police officer. You've never been a police officer. and. It's almost like you can only be listened to and respected if you've been a police officer. And I know, I know how excruciatingly hard, you know, you've worked throughout your career to be heard and be like, hang on a minute. I'm not making stuff up. I am looking at all the information and all the evidence that's coming in here. And I've got the ability to give you new lines of inquiry, to see where your intelligence gaps are, to push your investigation forward, and you will get there much quicker if you listen to us rather than, you know, just follow your old trails. But I almost feel like you had to earn your stripes. So the minute you'd done a good job for somebody and that they found something, you know, and it did push their investigation forward, suddenly they were like, Oh, could you just have a look at this? And it was, you know, it's like that slow burn. Baby steps.
2: There? Yeah. Well you mentioned crayons. One of the One of two of the the statements that I always got was, yeah, all right, love, I'm going to the airport to pick up X or a witness. Can you just write their name on a piece of paper, you know, on that computer (laughs) thing that you've got? And that's what they thought that I did on various big operations Mm -hmm. I was working on. All right, here comes Cracker. You know, a lot of people would refer to me as Cracker. That was probably one of the more polite versions of what they'd call me. Here comes Cracker. Tell us where he lives, then, love. You know, all of this sort of stuff rather than actually wondering what contribution could you really make and then when you made a big contribution in a case it's rare that you actually got the credit for that all other people did but people would then start to listen to you more and as you said come to you and say oh could you just have a look at this but it was almost on the qt on the down low that they're kind of coming to talk to you and they didn't ever want to source that they were getting this information from from you because yeah in some ways it, it was seen as shameful and The work that analysts do is so important. It's so detailed and it takes a lot of time. It's painstaking work, whether you're looking at a network of people and mapping relationships or whether you're looking at reviewing forensic opportunities or lines of investigation or looking at similar fact, bad character and other potential similar offences, which is, is just huge. And in fact, we met on a very high profile case. It wasn't high profile at the start but it was a linked investigative series of rapes where we caught the dangerous psychopath within months. And that's actually quite unusual. And I do believe it really came down to the analytical work. And the, the perpetrator was someone called Richard Baker. He was dubbed the DJ rapist by the media because that's what he did. He was traveling in Torremolinos, the the UK. He was you know subjective a good looking guy he kind of knocked every stereotype of what a rapist and a serial rapist looked like and we're going to talk about that case in detail because that's really where our worlds intersected and you know the work that we did we worked really hard on that investigation you know it was a case that i worked on full time when i was running the sexual offenses section And I was asked specifically to undertake the role nationally, looking at other similar potential offences. And you had an offence in um, Sussex at the time, in Brighton, Brighton. yeah, Mm. which linked with multiple offences. We had some in London, which I had found, but it also actually began in Essex. They had a number of cases initially. And so we are going to talk about that case specifically, because I think My listeners would find that really very interesting for us to talk about some of the things that we did. And like I said, it was unusual to have within literally months we caught this very dangerous and prolific psychopath who keeps trying to get out of prison. And I'm going to come back to the the latest information on the case because probably like you, I keep track (laughs) and like to see what's going on. But before we do that, I would love to talk to you about the... Murder of Dr. Naomi Dancy. And it's the subject of the podcast Ghost Story and why I would like to talk to you about it. And you can explain what your hesitation in wanting to talk to me about it. But <laughs> you actually flagged Ghost Story to me on a WhatsApp group that we're in. And can you remember what you said when you
1: had I messaged? Can, I
3: can. So I, I came across Ghost Story by accident. I don't know how I came across it actually. I must have been looking for the next thing. I'm a fairly, you know, prolific podcast listener and um, you know, and an audiobook listener. And I was obviously looking at my next thing and I was curious and I listened to the the trailer and I was like, right, I'm in. This sounds amazing. <laughs> So I I started listening to it, and um, actually the first person to pop up was Jackie Moulton. and I was like, oh my! So I've I've been working with Jackie Moulton very recently on something that will that will come out in due course. You know, a, a, a big project. A secret
2: project. A secret very project. exciting. You
3: didn't crack her then? She hasn't told you then.
2: <laughs> right, I'm still working on her. There's still time yet, Sam. On both of you. Oh bless you! But yeah,
3: it's um yeah a, a fantastic project and one that I've been hugely privileged and glad to be involved in, and one that puts analysis at the front and centre of a particular case. Amazing. Yeah, which is it's really good. Hopefully that those bits won't end up on an editing floor somewhere. And uh, you know, the the analysis will shine through, hopefully. But that's the first time I've met Jackie and what an absolute pre- you know, obviously I knew the legend. But um then Jackie Morton's voice appears and I send her a message saying, Oh my goodness, I can't you know, I can't believe you didn't tell me that you'd done this podcast. Um, with it the, <laughs> and then and then carry on playing and listening. And then the next voice I hear is like, Hang on a minute, I know those tail suit tones and it was you. And you'd been asked. And I, so I was like, oh my word, how have neither of these brilliant people in my life told me that they'd done this, you know, what I anticipated was going to be this amazing podcast? Um, and I was very, very excited and messaged you both. And you were like, yeah, you know, up? I was asked to give my opinion. And then we've sort of listening to it in lifetime. I know there were messages going back and forth. I was like, oh my goodness. You know, and as the next thing gets unveiled, it's like, well, you know, this is the, how interesting the, the, steps this is taking so yeah so i I did flag it to you in terms of knowing knowing it was out there and been put together but i don't know if you want to you want to pick up and carry on from that point
2: let's talk makeup for a moment what's your daily makeup routine are you an out of the door with a messy bun a mascara vibe or are you quaff to the max or maybe you're somewhere in between like me Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, high-performance and trademark formulas, and uncompromising standards. Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors and women who are emerging from homelessness. It's a beauty brand and a philosophy that goes beyond skin deep by empowering women. Did you know the first product they launched were false eyelashes, which was motivated by the fact that cancer patients lose their eyelashes? How amazing is that? I love their new sheer strength lip plumping peptide gloss. It gives you a visibly fuller-looking, luscious lips without fillers or uncomfortable stinging sensations. It's also ultra-hydrating, and there are 10 shades to choose from which enhance your natural lips, six shines, and four shimmers. Support and empower women, and treat yourself or a loved one. Thrive Cosmetics is a luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S.com slash analyst for 20% off your first order. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy, and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So, what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan, and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week, plus you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now they've done the maths, and Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormills.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code analyst 50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormills, F-A-C-T-O-R, F-A-C-T-O-R factormills.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know that Jackie had been involved. I didn't know the whole form that the podcast was going to take. And yes, an email had been sent to me, but I was so busy. I didn't quite register that it was now called ghost story and that it had come out but so i posted on my social media after you and we're in an analytical whatsapp group where we talk about lots of different things but uh you know we then started talking about ghost story and i posted on social media everyone should listen to this and you know i thought that they would return to each expert as the series progressed because that's what you, my expectation was that, and that people would want to hear the analytical process that each expert undertook to arrive at their opinion. But that wasn't what happened. And then I started to get very frustrated with it. And we were messaging back and forth. And, you know, I ended up talking with Jackie, who I met at New Scotland Yard many moons ago. And, you know, I said, do you want to talk to me, Jackie, about your process. So she said, yes. So that's where the three episodes came from. But you and I carried on in the analytical group, just talking about the episodes that I dropped with Jackie. And you have your own view, independent of of ours, on the series and what happened. And you also said to me when I said, well, let's talk about it on Crime Analyst. And you felt some hesitation about doing that because you felt that the three parts stood as as they were. But I kept saying, there's more to this story. There's more to this story. And, you know, what I really had issue with was the fact that what we knew was five people died in that house. Five people. And now what I know is that they died within three-year periods of each other. Three-year periods of each other, and a doctor was in the house. And I find even that curious of so many people dying. Was Dr. John Dancy just unlucky, you know, in the people dying around him or was there more to it? And you and I were messaging back and forth and I wanted to know more about Mary. You had actually said, oh, did you know there was a December Q&A that they did and I hadn't listened to it. So I listened to that and there were quite a lot of things I wanted to talk about within that Q&A. But then we started digging and you did specifically around Mary and her death certificate but also around her father and his death certificate and some of the things that you found out I really wanted to talk about so where should we start should we start with the Q&A the December Q&A because there were some key things in there for me that they and it, it was a Q&A that they did with Elizabeth Day which I thought was an interesting choice particularly when they were talking about the crime aspects, because she doesn't have a crime background. And, and what I will say, I took exception to the the bit, particularly around domestic abuse, where it was said, well, there's no evidence of physical abuse. And I, again, you know, wrote down furiously, domestic abuse isn't just physical, it's about coercive control. And when the person cannot control the person or the narrative, that's when it turns physical, And there was talk about him being potentially a narcissist, and then it was believed he couldn't be a narcissist because he had a good relationship with his children. And he was in all the details of the children's lives. Well, I wrote down attentiveness versus control. Was he controlling the children? They were at boarding school. They all appropriated his narrative about what went on in the past, but also in the future. And he was controlling them. And I really felt uncomfortable about saying, well, he can't be a narcissist because he had a great relationship with his children and there wasn't evidence of physical abuse. Therefore, there was no domestic abuse, and they didn't even explore coercive control, which I thought was absolutely not okay, given that coercive control correlates significantly with femicide. And that's something I've spent all my career looking at changing laws on. And I think it was a great disservice not to even mention coercive control. And the fact that, you know, Dr. John Dancy controlled the narrative, wrote Dr. Naomi Dancy out of her own murder and her own history. He did the same with Mary Garstin and her father. Why would you do that? You know, why weren't they questioning why someone would do that? And that was a huge issue for me, that, that Tristan didn't even seem to think that that manipulation served a purpose. Why lie about things? And the fact he changed the story to Dorothy L. Sayers, why does he think he's doing these things? And then it came out about the housekeeper, that she was indebted to him, because she had had a child out of wedlock. He then rescued her and she was called Dormouse. And therefore it talks to a subservient person who is indebted to him loyalty-wise. The last point that really jumped out at me, well, there were two of them actually, was one about him breaking into a morgue and Tampering with a dead body to get his friend, who was a doctor student, out of hot water. And my question was, why do they think that he did that when it was nothing to do with him? Why be so reckless and then brag about it? But then all the issues relating to Mary that just seemed to have been overlooked a a 36 year old who was pregnant, who dies suddenly and unexpectedly in the middle of the night. And there's a death certificate saying that she died from syncope, which is fainting. She had blunt force trauma to the head. She was pregnant. And then he calls a friend doctor, Dr. Thomas Day, who comes over and certifies the death. No more questions asked. No post-mortem. And that bothered me, and then finding out about the father. So, so there were all these other questions that I had. But you go ahead and and give your synopsis because I know you had issues with the the Q and A and just the podcast as a whole.
3: Yeah, so lots to unpack there, and lots to unpack. And I did say to you, you know, in, in terms of the the three episodes that you'd done with Jackie, that I just thought you'd done it succinctly and unpacked everything. And did I, you know, did I want to be part of a, a fourth episode? And I was you know, I, I did think I don't want to just re, you know, everything that you've said that I've agreed with and those are all the observations that I've made myself also, you know, through throughout listening to the podcast. And I didn't want to just come in and rehash. And, you know, I I don't know, Tristan, I don't want to, I don't want to keep bashing him with, uh, and another thing, you know, what about this? But I, th- I think there are important things. I think there are things that your listeners are probably going to want to know a bit more about the story. And part of me is, Actually, if you're going to tell a story, tell the whole story. And I know in terms of what was laid out for you and the information that was laid out for you really was partial. So the observations that you made, and really that everybody's been allowed to make, are on partial observations. And I don't know what else. Other information that Tristan's got available to him, obviously they've got family archives. Um, I do think the memoir would be... absolutely fascinating reading from a, a crime analyst point of view and to be fair to everybody, I think that we we will always think about it differently. We will always think about it in terms of actually is the behavior here that could be criminal or controlling because that's how we work and that's how our brains work and that's how we've been trained and also we've learned from our experience so we've learned from the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of offenders that we've seen come through, you know, come through jobs that we've done. So we we are going to look at it from a a different opinion. So to ask why those questions weren't posed, is, is that down to experience and expertise? But then if you're going to ask experts to come in, then listen to what they've got to say, and give everyone a balanced view. But the update, they said so the December update, I did find interesting and I did obviously message you about it. Um, the story about the morgue for me was just a huge red flag, if I'm being honest. So for me, that set out a very early intent to deceive and with high stakes. So huge risk. And indeed that what is his reward other than someone is indebted to him. So you're, you're setting the scene of, Actually, something very underhand has taken place there, and yet you've come out as a hero. And where have you seen that pattern of behavior throughout all of the actions that take, you know, something like very underhand happens, you come out the hero. Something underhand happens, you come out the hero. It's a repeating pattern of behavior. So what the minute I heard that, I was like, oh my word.
2: And he's got someone in his debt. Someone is in his pocket because of it, i.e. he can use that as leverage. Now, who is that doctor? Is it Dr. Thomas Day? That was initially my thought. Is that Dr. Thomas Day or is that someone else? That was
3: my my first thought as well, I've got to say. Were they at medical school together? I will confess to you now that I have been looking and trying to find out, but um, the medical records that I wanted to try and find just haven't been available. Because I just think it... For for my own curiosity, is it the same doctor? And we'll pick up. So so Dr Thomas Day was actually a registrar rather than the doctors that certified the deaths. But still interesting that he appears. Now, I don't know whether that is down to the fact that he was the only registrar for that particular borough at the time. That might be the case, in which case it becomes less suspicious. But was he the doctor at training school that got uh, helped out of a very difficult situation?
2: But that's a question that has to be asked. But also the point is about interfering with the dead body. He has a history of, of doing that. And it was his friend who had apparently done a tracheotomy that went wrong and he broke into the morgue and then he creates a different injury on the neck to make it look like something else. So that tells us it's not just about deceiving, it's about doing... Research and interfering and tampering with key evidence and a physical aspect to, to a dead body to make it look like something different. Yeah.
3: So, someone has lost their life through malpractice, haven't they? They've lost their life through malpractice, you know, whether that's in a training environment. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because medical students obviously have cadavers in order to, you know, learn on. And I, I believe that they take those cadavers through, the, you know, their medical training. But from what i was hearing this sounded like a, a live person so they were in a training environment in a hospital obviously which is my understanding of there um but that that being comfortable with being around people that are
2: deceased and manipulating their body and particularly their neck when we talk about Dr. morris tribe and could he possibly interfere with Morris Tribe or kill him in that way and create the hesitation marks. Well, one of the other experts who was a pathologist basically said that it would take someone awfully diabolical to do that or a psychopath. Or skilled. Yeah, and that's my point, that we perhaps are approaching this in a wrong way. If he were a doctor, which we know that he was, then manipulating bodies and dead bodies. Well, he has a history there. And now we know as a young student, he boasted about breaking into a morgue. So this shouldn't be overlooked as just nothing really to see here. It's actually a really important moment. This is something that he boasted about and confessed to. And therefore there's a there's a pattern here. So it doesn't make it so extraordinary that you have a one possibility that he created the hesitation marks. And we'll we're, we're come back to Morris Try. But that, for me, when you had messaged about it, of <laughs> course, was a, a huge red flag. And then when I yeah. listened to them explain what happened and actually kind of it was a no big deal, for me it was a big deal because it tells us about the reckless behaviour of him breaking in somewhere as well. When we he- heard about him being this potential spy, And he was trained to get into places, to break into places. And in his memoir as a spy, he talked about ethical liquidation. And that's basically killing people for a purpose. And the point was a doctor, no one would suspect a doctor. Now, if we go back in time, a huge emphasis was placed on a doctor's word of them being an upstanding member of the community. And therefore, his gravitas, all of that goes before him. And that's exactly why when I looked at the police file, and I'll make the point that what Jackie and I had was the police file, right? Tristan had a lot of other information, but we went from the police file. But in the police memo, it stated that the police were called at 1.37am. By 5.20am, they had already decided that Morris Tribe did it, as per Dr. John Dancy's narrative. And they literally parroted his narrative within the writing up of the report, which tells me there was no investigation.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And just to pick up on a couple of points that you've made in that last section. So, in the update, obviously you've got the you've got the morgue story, and then it's almost instantly like, oh, I don't know. You know, was it part of the, the fantasy? You know, he's full of tall tales, and you know, all that. And we're never sure what to believe and what not to believe. But what a fantastic way throughout your life to potentially. Get away with stuff, isn't it? Is that you? You weave these fantastic tales of maybe things that didn't happen, and then that blurring between the truth and a story just becomes more and more to the point where people are like, oh, I don't, I don't know. Well, you know, he, t- he told he told great tales, and maybe that's part of that. And also, what really struck a chord with me during the podcast was this whole that he used to be a spy. So we've seen that with offenders on more than one occasion and that there's something about narcissism and this want to be included in this kind of fantastical secret world that I just think you see time and time again. I think you've um, bad vegans Samara. I, you're going to have to, her name is completely gone out of my head, which is really bad. Salma. Salma. Yeah. Her, you know, her, her husband, you know, he was wrapped in this fake, CIA, you know, Anthony CIA's had created past. a
2: whole yeah subterfuge, subterfuge spy kind of world, an intelligence world that's very dark that people don't really know much about, and therefore you can kind of get away with anything if you start to wrap all of that.
3: Right. Same with the Tinder swindler. You know, it was a it was a a world where enough detail is given that it kind of is mysterious and it's curious. But as a woman you're not meant to ask too many questions about it because you can immediately be shut down. There's this link between, for me, like narcissism and creating this fantasy world that they can retreat to when things start to get sticky or when they want to, you know, shy away from something. It will be interesting when, you know, I won't say any more about that. I was going to say when the the, uh, case that Jackie and I have been looking at comes out, there's a similar pattern again with that sort of behaviour.
2: Well, we remember his memoir, the 3,000-page memoir, that the academics would not publish it because there was no provenance and a lot of it could not be verified. And they found multiple sources, i.e. multiple books that he had plagiarized from. And I thought it was interesting that Nick, the expert who was charged with assessing the work... I thought it was interesting that he was not happy in his company, in Dr. John Dancy's company. And he said, Dancy was a conceited, methodical old bore with hang-ups related to violence, discipline and honour. Wow, That's a very strong statement. And I have to say the hang-ups related to violence, discipline and honour, not playing by the rules... And the Honour Code, well, we heard Mark Dancy say, well, his loss of status for him being at home and not working and Dr. Naomi Dancy doing so well, her career's flying high, his at home, and that loss of status, Mark Dancy said, that would smart on him, that would be a problem. So we now have the two very different versions of Dr. John Dancy as the loving father and the doctor The some people on the blog had said, oh, he was a great doctor, he was always telling jokes and funny stories, versus a man like Nick who you know do I believe his credentials and expertise who has spent his time l- reading those three that 3000 page memoir coming to the conclusion that Dancy was a conceited methodical old bore with hang-ups related to violence discipline and honor and I'm inclined from the facts and the evidence to believe that version of who Dr John Dancy was but he was very adept at creating the other versions for people to well to manipulate people effectively. Yeah. And it, it never surprises me, Sam, just how the mental gymnastics that people do to believe the better version of events and I or, or the better version of the person. And I think deep down that's because people don't believe these psychopaths exist and they want to believe the best version. And oftentimes it's about protecting things within a family too, to believe that better version of the person versus the facts and the evidence. And so we have to, as analysts, ask questions and weigh everything up on balance. And also, you know, you mentioned you make your own luck. Well, I was always taught that by detectives at the start of my career. Laura you never get a case that just drops into your lap with a big bow on it and everything's tied you create your own luck, but you have to clear the ground from under your feet first. And they were the two premises that I worked to. And I can see you nodding now. Yeah. Right? Clear the <laughs> ground nodding from under seriously. your feet.
3: Seriously.
2: <laughs> make your own luck.
3: So, so important. So and, and follow, you know, follow the evidence. You know, I do have sympathy. I can understand, you know, it's human nature, isn't it? Why would you want to believe that monsters walk among us? They do. And they'll be manipulating, you know, they'll be manipulating people and presenting versions of themselves that they
2: want you to see. And they don't look like monsters. They're and they don't look like monsters. Charming. That's a trait of psychopathy.
3: Utterly, utterly charming. Utterly charming. You know, And that's part of the manipulation, isn't it?
2: It is. And no one likes to feel like they've had the world pulled over their eyes. But as no. analysts, we have to keep asking questions until we reach the end of that point. And therefore, we're quite pesky and tenacious of having to keep saying, but... What if A, B and C, and that could take you to X, Y and Z, and your inductive reasoning and logic and deductive, you have to take things to the next step based on evidence, the inferences, So yes, he may well be a good guy in one scenario when he's got people controlled, when his children are at boarding school, when everyone's doing what he wants them to do. But what if Dr. Naomi Dancy challenges him? What if she finds out he's having an affair with a woman that's 17 years younger? What if she didn't like liars and she's found out these things about Dr. John Dancy and her career is on the up and his is on the down Then does he remain that person who is loving and caring and and fun loving and the great storyteller? Or is it possible that he then becomes someone else to control the narrative and to take control? And, you know, we found out that, and one of the questions that was on my mind was about pregnant Mary. You know, pregnant Mary, who was 17 years younger, who was called Mousy, which tells me that again, you know, what's with all these women being called, you know, mousy, dormouse. It's it, Small, diminutive creatures. Yeah, who don't challenge. But Mary was 36 and it really bothered me the fact that she was pregnant and there was no real mention of what happened to the baby. She was pregnant. Well, the story the family told was that she died in childbirth, but that's not what happened. So why again create another story about what happened when that is not what she died from? And at 36, that's quite young. Okay, we go back to 1937. But to die when she is married to a doctor and it's written up that she fainted, syncope, make it sound like a posh name, but really she fainted and she had blunt force trauma to the head and yet there's no post-mortem. And it really bothered me. And I did confirm with Tristan, yes, the baby died, but he calls up, Dr John Dancy is present in that same house, calls a doctor... Now, was it Dr Thomas Day? It sounds like it most likely was. So Thomas Day, so we've
3: actually called not the death certificates, but the registration of death for both Mr Garston and also Mary, who who wasn't a Mary, actually. Mary was a Helen, Helen Mary Dancy. It's Thomas um, Day, who's the registrar of the death, but the certifying doctor, because I know we did want to certainly satisfy ourselves that that wasn't going to be the same person that had certified all the deaths in the house that that was my kind of nagging mm, you know hang on a minute Have we got something else going on here um but it is actually different doctors on those occasions but the registrar for the deaths is Thomas Day which might be that he was the only registrar in the area so in terms of You know, suspicions there. I'm more satisfied that it was a different doctor's each time. But actually, you know, doctor to doctor, you arrive at a doctor's house. Did they have any illnesses beforehand? They're speaking doctor to doctor. Does it just like, right, I'm going to, you're another doctor. It's peer to peer.
2: He says it's anemia. She just banged her head. Well, let me tell you about another woman where that happened. Helen Bailey, who was coercively controlled and murdered by a man That she met when she was grieving the loss of her long-term partner who died. She was on the beach and she watched her husband die in a riptide. She was grieving spectacularly and went on a bereavement forum and that's where she met Ian Stewart. She was targeted at a bereavement forum by Ian Stewart. She had said that she didn't want a relationship, but then he started turning up at her London house. He charmed her. She ended up having a relationship with him, and then he moved her out of London into a house in Hertfordshire. And he then gets her to change her will. She disappears. Mm -hmm. And she's not reported missing for a while by him. Then she is reported missing... And the police don't ask a lot of questions, even though her car's there and various other things are there. There's a whole story about that. But at one of the points where he, they knock on his door, it's early in the morning, he's wearing a dressing gown, and they say, you know, that they wanted to talk to him. And he said, Well, hang on, I've left the garage open. You're not going to go into the garage, which tipped them the wink that they should go into the garage. <laughs> yeah. Right. And <laughs> then they find her body, which was in the cesspit under the house yeah. with her little dog, Boris. Dog. Yeah. Yeah, And that always stood out to me, the fact that her and the dog were killed by him. Well, the question that I had for the police was his first wife, Diane, died. And his narrative was that she had epilepsy and she fell and she was outside and it was an epileptic fit. And that's what it was written up as. But fortunately, she had donated her brain to medical science. And so that I said, you've got to reinvestigate that case, you have to reinvestigate Diane, and sure enough they did. And through her brain being preserved for medical science, they realised upon re-examination that the physiological changes seen in her brain were put down to an epileptic fit, but were actually the result of being suffocated. The cause of death was recommended despite no normal telltale signs of a seizure being present, such as tongue biting or injuries from falling onto a concrete patio, as Stewart had claimed. Actually, an expert at Stewart's trial said Diane's chances of suffering a fatal seizure were in fact one in 100,000 as she hadn't suffered a seizure for 18 years and took medication to control the epilepsy. Ian Stewart was found guilty in 2017, for the murder of Helen Bailey, but he was later found guilty of the murder of his first wife, Diane. And that came from asking more questions. And what are the chances of he kills Helen Bailey? And the question mark for me was, well, what are the chances of his first wife just dying because she hit her head? And the fact is, more questions needed to be asked, and that's exactly what the police did. But the first murder was really covered up just because... Ian Stewart's narrative was believed, and that's the power of analysts' work and asking more questions and not just accepting someone's narrative versus the evidence and the facts. Yeah. Why just believe what you're being told, particularly when you've got a young woman who was pregnant and the baby died too? But as you describe, peer-to-peer, did this doctor know about Dr Naomi Dancy? I can't talk to that. I don't know. I mean, that was um, a number of years before But so we don't know whether that was something that people knew about. And to have two wives die, the first wife was murdered, but to have a second wife die like this, I would have been asking questions. But his narrative was just believed. And the anemia part, there's no medical evidence to show, as far as I'm aware, that she had anemia. And, you know, would that even show up on a post-mortem? Quite possibly, but the fact that there wasn't a post-mortem for me, means that there were no questions asked. But the father had died just before, in nineteen forty. After we started digging on this, because for me, it was a question mark of, well, hang on, the dad dies in the same address, and the mm. father's name was Edmund Lewis Longmire Garston. Garston, yeah, Longmore. Edmund Lewis Longmire Garston. And he died at seventy-five, and he did. Well, go on, explain what you found from finding his death certificate, the registration of his death.
3: What a fascinating family, really, to, um, the Garsons appear to be. And yeah, you, you, you said, oh, I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious to know what his name was, isn't it? And which is basically like a red rag to a bull, really, for me. And I'm sure you know that, Laura.
2: <laughs> just saying, well, yes, oh, I don't know what his name is.
3: I'd had, <laughs> had some back and right? forth. <laughs> I'd had some back
2: and forth with some of my listeners saying, you know, I talked about Mary and just my nagging concerns about Mary and her being really not investigated by ghost story, which, if I was the person telling the story, I would want to investigate everything about Mary. And then to find out her dad, who was nameless, also died. Having lived an incredible life as a police superintendent um, in India, well, he was living on his own up until 1939, but he moved in with them in 1940. He moved in with Mary and, and Dr John Dancy and then he died. And that raised an eyebrow for me. Well, hang on. What did he die from?
3: Well, let me lay out some of the research and we can talk about that.
2: Okay, I'm jumping in here to wrap this episode with Sam. I know so many of you wanted to know more about Mary, as did I. I'm still bumping on the fact that Mary was so young and pregnant and that her death and her baby's death were just signed off in the middle of the night by two men and no more questions were asked. I'm not okay with that. It's fascinating that my back-and-forth with Sam on a WhatsApp group about Dr Naomi Dancy and Mary Garstin and her father, Edmund Lewis Longmore Garstin, led to all this new information, because Sam wasn't okay with it either. Can you see how easy it is for women to become footnotes in their own deaths, and that a man's word is weighted and valued just on what he says alone? At the Ghost Story live event in London, I was told that there was no mention of Mary, or the baby, or Mary's father. That macro context was removed, and again, I'm not okay with that. The pattern of behaviour here is important to examine. The context matters. The Garstin family matter, and they shouldn't just be erased. Also, there was no mention or even a discussion about coercive control at the live event or in the Q&A December episode. That's a huge missed opportunity. The Garston family really were a very interesting family and I can't wait for you to hear my discussion with Sam about what she found. Until next time, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst, and if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheesley at Abridged Audio,